1: hello and welcome to the show that shines a light on houseplants it's on the ledge with me jane perrone In this week's episode, I'm demystifying the process of photosynthesis with my guest, Dr. Polly Schiffman. A reminder right at the top of the show that this is the last episode before I take a wee break. We as in small, as they say in Scotland... (laughs) So I'm not doing any episodes in the month of August. I'll be back with a new episode on September the 2nd. If you're a Patreon subscriber, your membership will be paused for the month of August. And if you pay annually, you'll get an extra month added on so you don't lose out. And welcome to new patrons, Kay and Hannah, who became legends this week. And to all of the Patreon subscribers who filled out the survey Legend Nancy was lucky enough to have her name pulled in the random draw for merch. Nancy, I've sent you a message asking for details for delivery of that swag bag. So do get in touch. And if you're not currently a Patreon subscriber but want to find out more, just check out the show notes at janeperone.com. Cracking straight on, this week we resurrect my Leaf Botany series for part seven in which terrestrial ecologist Dr. Polly Schiffman joins me once again. But this time we're talking about photosynthesis. Now, I think we've all got a basic idea of what it is, but how does it really work? And what does it mean for our plants and for us? That's what we're finding out this week. Dr. Schiffman's been on the show before talking about gutation and CAM. She works at California State University, Northridge in the US. And if you want to go back to that Gutation and CAM episode, I'll put a link to that in the show notes, uh, along with all the other leaf botany episodes. So let's harness the power of the sun and get cracking on our photosynthesis chat. (laughs) glad to have you on the show for the latest in my leaf botany episodes. We're talking about photosynthesis today. And I think this is one of these things where people sort of think, oh yeah, I kind of know what photosynthesis is. But then if you actually quiz them a bit deeper, a lot of us wouldn't really be able to give a very accurate definition. So let's start with the very basics. What
2: is photosynthesis? Okay, so like really big picture perspective, photosynthesis is this kind of amazing, complicated, but super important process by which plants, but other things are capable of photosynthesis too, meaning like algae and some cyanobacteria. Basically what photosynthesis is, is it's a way that plants capture sunlight, which is a form of energy But it's not a very useful form of energy. It might, you know, warm things up a little bit, but it's a kind of unuseful form of energy and make it into a very useful form of energy, which is stored in the bonds of sugars that can then be transformed into carbohydrates and other things. And so it's this process that only a few kinds of organisms can do. Like we can't do it, Um, Our animals can't do it, fungi can't do it, but um, plants can, and It is really the foundation of most of life on Earth. So it is, you know, fantastically important. But yeah, something that a lot of times we learn about in school and then sort of go, yeah, 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 that's something that plants do and has something to do with them being green. Oftentimes we forget, you know, what it is and and why it matters.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely vital, isn't it? And if it wasn't for photosynthesis, none of us would be here. So we really should take the time to learn a little bit more about it so let's just go over the basics of the process what are the inputs how does it all
2: work and what comes out the other end so it's yeah deceptively simple when we think about it in sort of the most kind of stand back and think about it way where the inputs are three things sunlight carbon dioxide which is a gas in our atmosphere and water and those are, those three things are transformed through this process, photosynthesis, into some really important outputs being sugars and oxygen. And sugars can then be complexed into more complicated molecules that are terribly useful because, there, and there are, there's energy stored in the bonds of those sugar molecules that can then be made into carbohydrates. That can become starch and other storage molecules, or they can become wood, or they can become other kinds of molecules um, as well. And then, of course, oxygen. And, you know, oxygen is like 21%, I think, of our atmosphere, the air we breathe, and that if, so we rely just to you know take in a breath every moment on photosynthesis. So those are the, the inputs and the outputs, but it's actually a really complicated cascade of chemical processes that probably most people who are into houseplants don't want to think about. But all of it is really driven by the presence of a really important pigment, a green color uh, molecule that's in plant tissues called chlorophyll. And that is the substance that is absorbing the sunlight into the the plant's leaves, usually, although certainly stems and even aerial roots and flower parts sometimes and fruits can also be green and photosynthetic. But that chlorophyll molecule captures the sunlight and then makes it possible for the plant to then do what we call fix the carbon and make sugars. And as sort of a byproduct, almost like a waste product, oxygen gases produced.
1: It sounds as you say like it the, the further you get in and the more you focus down on this I'm sure that I mean there are I'm sure whole PhDs and scientific studies and many many more things have been studied on uh, photosynthesis and indeed you have previously appeared on the show talking about crassulation, acid metabolism which is obviously connected to photosynthesis in terms of how plants operate and how cacti and succulents work but What I want to know is connected to timings. Is photosynthesis a process that the plant can turn on and off at will? Or is it something that's happening all the time? What happens if the plant doesn't photosynthesize for a while?
2: Well, it's pretty much happening if there's enough light. Even a little bit of light, plants will often be doing at least a little bit of photosynthesis. Typically, the more light there is, at least to a, up to a, a maximum level, I mean, they can't, you know, photosynthesize an infinite amount if they have an infinite amount of sunlight, but they will increase the amount of photosynthesis with more and more light. And so that that light capture process that the, the chlorophyll is doing is something that, at least in the wild, um, is happening during daytime. Um The carbon fixation part, where the carbon dioxide is transformed into sugars, that doesn't actually require light, and um, that can happen in the dark. It doesn't have to happen in the dark, but it can. And so depending on the plant and where, you know, it it lives, um, it might be photosynthesizing a lot if there's a lot of light available or, you know, somewhat less if there's less light. And, of course, the capacity that plants have for photosynthesis is typically related to their evolutionary adaptations to their, you know, ancestral habitat. So if we have a houseplant that's a tropical aeroid that originated in a Malaysian forest in the tropics there, it might be in the understory, and then it might not be exposed under those conditions to a lot of direct sunlight um, it might be at least somewhat shaded a lot of the time, or if it's a epiphyte, maybe it's getting a little bit more light. Um, and so, those plants may not have the capacity to photosynthesize at a super high level um, if exposed to a lot of light. Some plants can; they're they're flexible and they can ramp up if if they if they have uh, more light exposure. But some plants can't; they're kind of stuck photosynthesizing at a lower rate because that's just kind of where their evolutionary uh, trajectory took them when they were, you know, wild plants.
1: I guess this is a something that houseplant growers possibly has crossed their mind at some t- point, knowing a little bit about photosynthesis, which is possibly a dangerous thing and thinking, gosh, if I put grow lights on my house plant 24 hours a day, surely they're going to grow
2: loads. I'd imagine that's not a wise idea. Yeah, I mean, that might be the case, but it might not. Um, and sometimes, you know, I think it's best to think about if you know something at least about, you know, kind of roughly where that plant lives in its wild habitat, you can kind of imagine, you know, how much it might need. But of course, you know, even if you know, oh, this is a, a tropical forest plant or this is a desert plant, you know, trying to simulate that in an indoor home environment is not the easiest thing in the world to do, especially if you live in the temperate zone. Um, but so, yeah, you can, you know, supplement light with grow lights, but then maybe the plant will grow more. And maybe it won't. And some, a lot of times I think it just involves um, trial and error experimentation. And hopefully you don't kill the plant in the process. Although I think we all have, you know, not known precisely the, what the growing conditions are uh, that are needed for a plant. And we subject them to something that's kind of horrible as we discover maybe too late.
1: Yeah, uh, we've been there, done that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think one of the things about a lot of the houseplants that are, I would say, you know, ones that have been around for a long time and are ubiquitous is that they are plants that have been able to adapt so amazingly to really varying conditions. You know, I'm thinking of things like the Devil's Ivy Epipremnum and of course Monstra Deliciosa, you know, they can just adapt to all kinds of conditions and that's why they make such good house plants. I imagine, you know, those, if you had them in, you know, 24-7 light, they'd probably be fine. But as you say, experimentation is the key. And when it comes to photosynthesis, are there other factors that can impact it? I'm thinking of things like temperature and uh, water supply. Do those also need to be in place in order for photosynthesis to work
2: well? One of the ingredients for photosynthesis is water. So you have carbon dioxide, sunlight and water. And all three of those things are necessary. And so moisture, obviously, is, is needed for it. And plants have these little tiny pores, little tiny holes in their leaves, usually mostly concentrated on the undersurfaces of, of leaves. Um, and they can be on other tissues as well, but mostly on leaves. And those, those little pores on the undersurfaces of leaves, called stomata, can open and close. The plant actually can regulate the aperture sizes of, the, of them. And they vary from plant to plant and even from leaf to leaf on a single plant and certainly among species. But anyway, the, the plant is opening and closing those stomata um, depending on conditions. And so if there isn't very much moisture in the soil, it might close its stomata in order to avoid losing uh, moisture uh, by evaporation out of out of the, uh, its leaves through those little holes. But when that happens, it's closed its stomata, and that means that carbon dioxide gas, which is one of the other ingredients for photosynthesis, it can't get into the leaves. And so photosynthetic rates will go down when plants close their stomata. And they don't have to close them all the way necessarily. They might just close them a little bit, and that will reduce the, the amount of water loss but also the amount of Uh, carbon dioxide coming in and so there's a complicated sort of set of factors that are going on here not only involving light but also moisture and temperature so if it's warm the plant might close its stomata to reduce uh, water loss again and in doing so it will you know reduce the amount of carbon dioxide coming in and that reduces uh, photosynthesis
1: I remember seeing a picture of stomata and they have these little, I think they're called guard cells, the the things that kind of open, make them open and close. And they do look like little mouths, I always think. (laughs) Uh, But it's interesting to think of them, as you say, like they're not necessarily shutting completely, but they might be getting smaller in response to conditions and um, adapting as things go. I mean, can they react really quickly? Like,
2: Almost certainly within minutes. I don't know um, if they, they probably can even react faster than that. But the the studies that I've seen typically will be looking at stomatal sizes, say, throughout a day. And in the middle of the day, when it's hot and bright and, you know, um, perhaps more stressful for a plant, they will actually close, you know, and they call that the midday depression, which is when water loss will go down because, or evaporative water loss out of the leaves, that transpiration will go down because the stomata have closed at least somewhat. Dealing with that hot part of the day. And then as the day progresses and it gets less stressful in the late afternoon, the stomata open again, and they can regulate, certainly uh, on that level. Now, in nature, you know, that that is something that happens all the time. You have these diurnal fluctuations. Um, Water amounts typically don't fluctuate that rapidly, I think, in, in a natural environment, although certainly drying up can happen across a day and certainly, you know, over a short period of a few days. Um, but uh, yeah, so the plants are responding instantaneously or close to instantaneously to their kind of atmospheric and soil environment in that way.
1: Can you confirm for me? what I think I know, which is that the old sort of rumour that having plants in your bedroom is a bad idea because they give out carbon dioxide at night is not something we need to concern ourselves with. I'm guessing that's
2: based on a misconception about the amount of carbon dioxide that plants produce? It absolutely is. You don't need to worry about that at all. First of all, carbon dioxide is a tiny fraction. I mean, it's a shockingly small fraction of all the gas in the atmosphere. It's right now because of elevated carbon dioxide due to industrial processes, you know, burning fossil fuels and deforestation and the decomposition that is associated with that and burning Um, Our global carbon dioxide level is about 0.04%, so a tiny fraction of 1% of all the gas in our atmosphere is carbon dioxide, but it's a, a hugely impactful fraction. So if you have a few houseplants in your bedroom, they're hardly um, impacting the amount of atmospheric gas one way or the other. And plus, plants are photosynthesizing. They're taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and producing oxygen. And of course, oxygen can also be toxic at super high levels, but it's about 21% of the atmosphere. And whatever plants... Even if you had... Every square, you know, centimeter of your bedroom covered with plants you probably would have a very negligible impact on the, the the ratios of oxygen and carbon dioxide that you would be experiencing.
1: It makes sense when you think about it. Otherwise, how would humans have evolved to live in forests <laughs> if this was the case? We would never have been able to exist in those environments where there are some huge carbon dioxide load created by uh, plants that would impact on us. There are lots of other misconceptions about photosynthesis. I'm sure when you've been teaching students, you've come across, some humdingers
2: oh yeah and in fact i it's not really a misconception but when i was a student i took a biochemistry course and on, i remember this vividly on the first day of class and it was general biochemistry it wasn't about plant biochemistry and the professor said right off the bat that he didn't like plants he wasn't interested in them and he didn't even like eating them and so therefore he was not going to talk about plant biochemistry which I thought was kind of hilarious but um, you know I think basically he didn't want to talk about photosynthesis because I mean that is kind of the primary you know biochemical, f- phenomenon you should be teaching in a course like that. But but I also get, I get, of course, because I'm a university professor and I teach this topic, I'll have students in my class who might be interested in biology, but they're not really interested in plants. They think they're interested in animals or they want to study to become a physician. And so they're really interested in, you know, cells and molecular processes and they don't really care about plants. But Plants are the source of our nutrition, everything from, you know, vitamins to, you know, the energy that we need to keep our cells alive. Every organism that can't photosynthesize relies on a photosynthesizer or a whole bunch of them for food and, you know, nutrients. And so not just to breathe, but to just keep our cells running energetically, we have to consume plants or animals that eat plants. So they're, they're hugely important. And I think people naively think, oh, you know, I'm not into plants, so I don't need to know about them. But you, we kind of do. And especially, you know, nowadays, I mean, this, isn't, this is sort of off the topic of houseplants. But, you know, the fact that plants are photosynthetic means that they are the best sequesterers of carbon dioxide that we can really control in our environments And so planting more plants means that we're taking more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And because carbon dioxide has been increasing in the atmosphere, we really should try and do that as much as possible. Now, you know, a house full of houseplants is going to have a really negligible impact on that. But if we try to do more reforestation of areas that used to have forests but don't anymore, that certainly would be important and affecting all of us, you know, who live on this little planet floating around in space. And it's all because of photosynthesis.
1: Exactly. And I've just seen so many interesting posts on social media over the last few days during the heat wave we've been having here, showing the amazing impact that plants can have on dealing, dealing when in the midst of a heat wave, actually, the more plants you've got around you, the better. Um, I saw a, a picture of two greenhouses. One was surrounded by plants on the outside of it and the other one wasn't. And the temperature difference was about 10 degrees because the plants were just shading the greenhouse and helping it stay cool. And the same with shots of of paving with weeds growing in between. And you could see that the weeds were way cooler than the stone
2: and obviously having an impact there. It's not just shade, you know, because the plants are transpiring moisture throughout their out of their stomata. It's actually doing evaporative cooling at a, you know, s- Uh, city scale. So if we have more plants, we have less of what's called the urban heat island effect where we cities heat up because they have all those surfaces like buildings and asphalt and cement and concrete and rocks that dissipate heat into the atmosphere and and warm up our our urban environments. But if we have a lot of trees, yes, they shade, but they also do evaporative cooling uh, with the moisture that they're taking from the soil. And that helps cool as well. And that you know, is good for all of us and especially in places where they don't have very many trees um, planting them. I mean, it may feel like, oh, it's not going to make a difference now, but trees go pretty fast. And yeah, we can, we can make a difference and we should. And we should protect the trees we have by making sure they get enough water. If in like where I live here in Los Angeles, in California, it's we are in a, you know, another drought and the thinking is, is if you need to water anything, water your trees. Forget the lawn, but water the trees.
1: I totally concur. And I've got a crabapple tree that I planted last year that I'm taking out bowls of grey water from my washing up bowl. And it's, it's all ending up under that tree to try to make sure it keeps establishing well, because uh, you're right. That's what we need to be doing. Any other photosynthesis
2: misconceptions you can think of that you've heard? It's not a misconception, but I would call it a fun fact. And that is, in photosynthesis, there is this really important enzyme. And enzymes are proteins that drive chemical reactions. And so, obviously, photosynthesis is a biochemical process with a lot of chemical reactions. And one key enzyme in that process is this chemical called, it's a mouthful, ribulose-1-5-bisphosphate carboxylase oxygenase, which we as biologists and botanists have given a nickname to because we don't want to say that. Long name all the time. We call it Rubisco. And Rubisco is super important in the carbon fixation process. But the reason I wanted to mention it is because just the presence of that one kind of enzyme in plants um, is the primary reason we need to fertilize plants because Rubisco is the most important protein on earth. And in a given plant leaf, it's about 30% of the nitrogen in that plant leaf is just that. Um, it's nitrogen in RuBisCO. So if you need to fertilize your house plant, it's probably because of the presence of that one super important photosynthetic enzyme, RuBisCO, and the activity that it's doing constantly. You know, when there's you know photosynthesis going on, it's fixing carbon, fixing carbon, fixing carbon. And when the plant's growing, it has to make more RuBisCO and needs to grab more nitrogen out of the soil. So we have to fertilize. And so I think that's it's not really a misconception, but it's its definitely uh, kind of a techno geek <laughs> fun fact.
1: I'm going to be using that in a conversation very, very soon. I love that. Um, that
2: is a good to know. Well, another actually another fun fact, you know, a lot of houseplants are, uh, you know, a lot of uh, tropical forest kind of understory species and epiphytic plants that don't get full sun all day long and in nature sometimes those plants get very little sunlight on a you know a continuous basis they rely on these uh this phenomenon called sun flex, which are little blasts of sunlight and if you've ever walked under a forest canopy you've seen them they're little patches of sunlight on the ground and they might be lighting up that that leaf or that plant for a short time and then the light is gone and maybe for, it's gone for the rest of the day or maybe it's windy and the lights are kind of bopping around because the little patch of light is is moving as the leaves move in the tree canopy and cause the light not to be consistently in that spot for any meaningful length of time. And there are uh, tropical plants especially, but other forest plants as well, that are really adapted to using that very ephemeral availability of light to live their lives. And those plants, you know, we then take sometimes take them into our homes and supply them with, you know, kind of continuous light. And maybe that's why sometimes they don't do well. I think Plants are pretty uh, flexible and they can tolerate, you know, even living, um, you know, maybe adapted to sunflex, maybe in a, uh, a home environment, they can tolerate longer periods of light and even thrive in that. But maybe that's one reason sometimes they don't is they're really not adapted to that exposure to long, long periods of light. But there's really no way to know. And, you know, given different species have different levels of ability to deal with that kind of situation.
1: I guess you know there's been a process over the last gosh well 200 years or so of plants being you know experimented with and some of them have fallen away because they just didn't work as indoor plants and other ones have absolutely thrived and I guess also looking through the history of indoor plants we can see that you know conditions in our homes have changed so dramatically that you know what worked in Victorian times didn't necessarily doesn't necessarily work today and I'm thinking of you know researching my book i've come across lots of images of english ivy hedera helix being grown uh, which i guess quite liked the sort of very um cool damp nature of a lot of victorian homes in britain uh, but are not quite so happy in our centrally heated homes so yeah conditions have changed but the old faithfuls i guess are the ones that you know can really seem
2: to be able to adapt to all these different factors that we have going on first houseplant species that have a long history of uh, living in home environments there's been selection that's gone in on in the um, the nursery trade i'm sure that is selecting for houseplants that are that will tolerate you know those kinds of conditions, and either individuals of that species or, you know, different types from maybe some areas, you know, heart collected from some areas in the wild rather than others, maybe, you know, just not able to to live in a home environment where other individuals will be great um, sources of tissue for growing up more plants to, to, you know, live in a home environment, which is really different than out in nature. So yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And as you say, uh,
1: the, uh, the, the plants are probably being selected out for the ones that really work um, as opposed to the ones that just look a bit, that don't last the course um, over the years. So we shall see. But it's been fascinating to talk to you, Polly. And hopefully that's made photosynthesis a little bit clearer for our listeners. So thanks very much for joining me today. Well, you're welcome. Glad to do it. Thanks so much to Dr. Polly Schiffman for joining me this week and to you for listening. And I hope the month of August slips away pleasantly enough until I'm back with you again. And if you've got suggestions for episode topics plants you'd like to cover for the autumn then please do let me know always love to hear from you oftentimes when i get emails from people they say oh i didn't think i'd get a reply i do try to reply to most people so do email if you've got an idea suggestion constructive criticism or a question for the q a right that's me signing off until september So enjoy your rest and I'm going to enjoy mine. Bye. this podcast was roll jordan roll by the joy drops the road we used to travel when we were young by komiku and overthrown by josh woodward all tracks are licensed under creative commons visit the show notes for details